electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the Nasdaq market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. Another round of records. The S&P and Dow hitting all-time highs for the second day in a row. And some big consumer names from Marriott to MasterCard notching their own records, too. So what happened to the slowdown? We'll debate what we should make of this recent resilience. Plus, the sun rising on Japan, the ETF that tracks the country's top market, is up more than 9% already this year, far outpacing the S&P's performance. But can the run keep going? We'll dive into the charts to find out. And later, United takes flight after its latest report. Netflix nears two-year highs ahead of its earnings. And why one of our traders says there's more to Macy's than meets the eye. We're digging into all those trades tonight. I'm Melissa Lee, coming to you live from Studio B at the Nasdaq on the desk tonight. Steve Grasso, Karen Feiderman, Badawan Eisen, and Guy Adami. We start off with the Dow hitting another milestone, closing above 38,000 for the first time ever. It took 25 trading days for the blue chip index to jump 1,000 points. The S&P 500 also closing in on record territory for the second session in a row, and the Nasdaq hitting its highest in over two years. The bullishness extending to popular consumer stocks, too. Uber, Chipotle, Costco, Marriott, and Visa hitting records during today's trading, the names standing out over the past year with massive gains. So what kind of message is this run consumer name sending us about slowdown worries? And I'll go to the worrier in chief mm, on this desk, Don Dami. <laughs> this segment of the market is telling us something. Telling them people feel good about things. Obviously, they've seen headline inflation come down. They've seen interest rates come down. There hasn't been really a market event for the last five or six months, meaningful at least. So people feel good about things. It's a new year, all those things. I totally get it. Unemployment rates, where it is. So there's a reason to feel good. The flip side of that coin, and Peter Bookvar will probably speak to this, leading economic indicators out today, now down 21 months in a row. Now, granted, it wasn't as bad as Strube was expecting, but it was still down now 22 out of the last 24 months. So Something's got to come home to roost at some point. Again, I'm still in the camp. You put all this together, it means unemployment's probably going to start ratcheting higher in a meaningful way. But right now, people feel great about everything. But shouldn't these stocks factor that in? Should. If it's going to happen, right, they should factor them in today, uh, rising rate, rising unemployment rates, that is. Uh, sure. I just don't think the market is necessarily taking into account that uh, the, the Fed may not be as accommodative as they'd like to think. Um, we have seen that March number move from, I guess, whatever it is, it was, 81%, 85% to just now sub-50. But there's still several calls for us that be well over 100 basis points in terms of cuts. Um, and, and I just think that, you know, that pull forward persists. And then you look at the stock market performance over the last uh, four months or so since the bottoming out of October, you really can't afford not to be involved. And then you look at the top heaviness of that um, and, and some of the, the, the laggards. You look at consumer spending, you look at consumer sentiment, the consumer has remained strong. And I think, and I'm guilty of it myself, I definitely would have faded the, the better part of that consumer discretionary complex. And that is likely why you're seeing the strength, because you expected to see it in technology. You expected it to see broadening out in maybe some of the other stapled areas. You did, not expect it to, you did not expect to see it in consumer discretionary, and you likely didn't expect it in the home building complex either. And those two have been off to the races. I get intellectually why one might doubt the market gains, why one might doubt this consumer 
rally. Well, one might doubt uh, the strength of the market given how lopsided the gains are. But yet this is the market that we have, Steve. Right. So, so, so what do you do? How, how can you reconcile that? Yeah. So if, if you if you think that it doesn't have to be a recession or no recession, recessions happen, they're normal, natural, healthy. What happens if we had a recession late last year? Not last year. What happens if we had a recession in 22? What happens if we had rolling recessions in different se- sectors? We could have already got past that. This could be the 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 soft landing. And to Guy's point, if if uh, unemployment starts ratcheting up, isn't that the long and variable lag that the Fed is most likely afraid of? And that's why it doesn't appear as though he should be cutting, but he's going to cut. So it, it shouldn't feel right. It does because he's late. So if we start to see all of that happen now, to, to Bonowin's point, I think you have to front load these cuts because you're in an election year cycle. You have to stay away from looking political. He wants to stay away from the back half of this year because he doesn't want people to think he's screwing around with the marketplace. Mm. So you invest through it. You buy the market. But what Waller said was basically, you know, we're in a stone's throw, whatever the phrasing is, of our inflation target. But at the same time, one of the worst things that could happen is that we start cutting when inflation ticks higher. So there does seem to be a recognition that there is some, you know, concern that they might start too early. They might start aggressively and that inflation is not, in fact, fully tamed. I think it's not fully tamed. It's heading in the right direction. But I don't know why they need to cut now, right? It seems to me sort of, why give it away for free, right? The right. economy is sort of doing fine. And, uh, you know, the, the, um, the error of cutting too soon is far greater than the benefit of cutting a little bit early or when people expect. I, I don't know why they would need to cut in March. I think I hear you about your point of not wanting to be political. I think you can not cut and still talk somewhere in the dovishness kind of mm-hmm. area. And so keep the market excited about that. I mean, we're right now in this Goldilocks where if unemployment does tick up a little, that people think, oh, that's great, because now they can really, you know, rates will come down, right? right? So uh, I do think that's what we'll see. Why the market goes up every day, I don't really know. It doesn't make sense to me that things are vastly different. Valuations are high. They could get higher for sure. I do think, though, that this leading indicator thing, I realize it was negative and we're a stream of negative, but everything in the market's about expectations. Mm-hmm. What were the expectations? You mentioned that. The expectations were for something worse. Yeah, the expectations were for negative 0.3, came in negative 0.1. It is all about expectations. I'm just pointing out now, it's almost two, it is two years. So it's 22 out of 24 months, 21 months in a row. And for whatever reason, again, money flows, whatever it is, exuberance, the market's not pricing any of that in. One has to wonder, though, again, with the yield curve that's seemingly steepening now, it's the inversion that's sort of the warning sign. It's the steepening that should give people pause. Historically, that's been the case. It's happening now. Two thirties, I think, have flattened out. But again, the market doesn't seem to care right now. So what would you be inclined to do at this point, Bono? Would you be inclined to uh, buy protection uh, on this market at this point? Um, Brace for some sort of downturn in certain sectors, what? I think you'd probably start dollar cost averaging. I think Steve mentioned that. So I, I'm going to maybe like get in between. I think he said buy the market. I think 
you continue to invest in the market. I think protection is extremely cheap, so it makes a lot of sense to, so to do it. So begrudgingly, it sounds like you, you that, put that, money into ex- the market. That's exactly the word I use in Q4, <laughs> begrudgingly. But but yes, I mean, do you want to be right or do you want to make money? And as, as you said, we can do the mental gymnastics as to why we think our thesis is correct. But ultimately, you have to trade the market that you're given. With that said, not buying protection to me is just a bit irresponsible at these levels if you're not at least going to mitigate risk by some type of dollar cost averaging. All right. Well, our next guest suggests the market rally isn't sustainable and weaker economic data could soon get in its way. Peter Bookvar is chief investment officer at Bleakley Financial Group and a CNBC contributor. Peter, great to have you with us. Um, Bono just said he is begrudgingly putting money into the markets. That was his motto in Q4 as well. are you ultimately, I mean, I, I understand that you, you think the economic data is going to turn and work against the markets, et cetera, et cetera. But at this point in time, do you acknowledge that the market seems a little bit stronger than what you may have anticipated going into this year? Uh, yeah, well, certainly the last couple of days and, mm-hmm. and how we ended last year. But I understand the market's desire to rally on expectations of Fed rate cuts. I mean, that's been the playbook for decades now. So I get why we rallied. Uh, I think earnings over the next couple of weeks are, are just in time in the sense of testing uh, the thesis that everything is fine. And there are just so many mixed signals within the global economy that it just can make your, your head spin. When you look at holiday sales, for example, you have master pulse, uh, the MasterCard spending pulse you had the National Retail Federation saying that holiday sales were about 3.5%. Well, that's the rate of inflation. So on a real basis, holiday sales were zero. U.S. manufacturing, global manufacturing for that matter, are in a recession. You have the pace of existing home sales near 30-year lows, but home building doing okay. You have high-end spending on travel and leisure, hospitality, restaurants doing fine, but spending on stuff not doing well. And if you looked at the Beige Book last week, of the 12 districts, eight basically saw no growth. You had three that saw modest growth, one that saw a modest decline. That doesn't sound like a great economy. So it just, and then you look at overseas, Europe is essentially essentially at best flatlining. China, we know, is further decelerating. So it's really a tough environment to both figure out and, and maneuver through. And I think the stock market is really trading off the Fed is going to not be in our face anymore. And maybe even NQT2 to throw that in there and just buy stocks because of that rather than a real analysis on the, on the full macro. So, Peter, when, when you would admit that the market is taking its lead from the Fed, if the Fed cuts, the market's going to rally. That's been the, that's been the standard. What can QT give us a clue on right now should we watch for that to stop first and then the cut is coming? Because you can't have both at the same time, I wouldn't think. Well, I think that's an internal uh, debate within the Fed. Can they continue with QT because Jay Powell wants to get the balance sheet to a level that he's comfortable with, which he can't even define, actually, but at the same time sort of tweak monetary policy in the rate side to reduce the odds of a recession but not cut too much that you stoke higher inflation again. And this is a very difficult situation that Powell's in. I think his main priority right now is not to stoke a flare-up in inflation. He thinks he's got a handle on it with the downside of the cyclical spike, but keeping inflation low is his next battle. 
And I, I think that's really going to be interesting to see how the Fed plays the balance sheet with what they do with interest rates. But even the interest rate story is a trade-off. If they only cut a couple of times, call that maybe just a tweak, and the Fed funds rate's still going to remain high. If they cut six times, seven times, that's because the unemployment rate's going to four and a half to five, and we're in a recession. So uh, it, it, this is not an easy situation to really analyze, and from the Fed's perspective, to actually maneuver through. Peter, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. So for a while, we've talked about this idea of a long and variable lag. Are we enough? Has enough time passed through when the Fed started hiking aggressively that we've seen what the lag is? Or do you think that there's more to come on that? I think this is going to take a few more years. Uh, this year, we have about $750 billion of corporate debt that needs to be refinanced. Now, granted, some of that took place in 2023, but that rises to over a trillion in 2025. You have about a half a trillion dollars of commercial real estate that needs to be refinanced. And, and I, I've spoken to just over the weekend to some real estate people that are just crossing their fingers that the 10-year yield goes down to 3%. Because if rates stay around these levels, with their debt coming due at the latter part of this year, they're in trouble. So I still think that this has many years to sort of work its way through the refinancing cycle. And uh, that is going to be a continuous drag on economic activity. Now, that said, when you look at those companies that borrow SOFR Plus, well, if the Fed's going to cut, maybe they've seen the worst of it. A lot of small, medium-sized businesses do borrow floating rate. So uh, ironically, it could be the bigger companies that are going to see the jumps in interest rates. And we have to remember that one of the main contributors to profit margin expansion over the past couple of decades was lower interest expense. Peter, what do you make that's going on in China? The FXI closed around 21, levels we probably haven't seen in 16 or so years. Is that any reason for concern whatsoever? Well, it's certainly a concern because it's the second biggest economy. But if you showed me that chart and I didn't know what it was called, I would say that this is final capitulation. Everyone's just throwing up, and this is the bottom. And I actually think that is the case with the Hang Seng Index. And I've been dead wrong in the first three weeks of the year calling for the Hang Seng to outperform the S&P 500 this year. But I still think that this is the sort of the final leg of the bear market, specifically Hang Seng, the H shares. The A shares much more complicated and tied to uh, Chinese policy, where there are a lot of companies within Hong Kong that have global operations and particularly operations throughout the region of Asia. Peter, great to see you. Always good to get your analysis. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Peter Brookfart, Bleakly Financial, um, one of the strangest markets he's seen. Uh, ben Emmons wrote a note this morning, uh, Medley, and, and he said, you know, the markets are trading on this notion of an exquisite soft landing, which I really, I mean, it, the phrase stuck out at me because it, it felt really right, that the markets were thinking that it was going to be just right. For the first time maybe in history, the Fed has actually succeeded in doing exactly what it set out to do. Certainly, which Pearson. seems unlikely. It, it seems, ex <laughs> but I've thought it was unlikely for a long time. However, right. today, it still seems unlikely, given everything that you see below the surface. The only thing, in my opinion, the only thing that's giving you encouragement or backing up that thesis is the stock market, because everything below the surface says something else is going on. Right. You're always long. That's I'm always long. Right. But how does that composition mm -hmm. of long change in this sort of market environment? 
So just increasingly nervous, you know, <laughs> stressful, anxiety, that kind of thing. But and then as you talked about the volatility index being relatively low, so look for protection there. Um, I always have some kind of protection on and um, I just nervous, but I'm not going to trade around things, particularly if they have big gains. That's a really, really tax inefficient structure for me to think I know when to go out, when to get in. And then I make enough difference to make back what I pay on realized gains. I know I'm not capable of that. So I just get increasingly nervous. Would you buy some of the consumer stocks that we named at the top of the show that are hit, hitting new highs? Yeah, I, I mean, Marriott looks like it was breaking out on a chart. And whenever they break out, it looks like it's it, you'll get that tailwind. So you could have a little bit of reversion. But when you look at a name like Costco, Costco has an over 90% renewal rate on its membership. That one has been a steady eddy as well. Markets will fluctuate. I do trade around positions. And if and people that are watching the show that have it in a retirement account don't have the issue that, that Karen's talking about. So you can have market timing. All right. We've got an earnings alert for you. United Airlines soaring uh, in the after hours on a top and bottom line beat. But the airline is uh, forecasting a loss of the current quarter due to the Boeing 737 MAX 9 grounding. CNBC's Phil LeBeau's got the details. Phil. Uh, Melissa, that loss expectation for the first quarter, not entirely because of the MAX 9, though. It certainly is contributing to what the company is expecting in Q1. We'll talk about that in a bit. Let's quickly go through the Q4 numbers. Part of the reason why the stock is moving higher, look, we knew it would be a strong fourth quarter. It was a clean holiday period for the airlines, strong demand. As a result, you have United earning $2 a share in the fourth quarter. The street S expectation was a buck 69. Revenue also coming in better than expected at 13.63 billion. Total revenue per available seat mile was down 4.2% compared to the same quarter in 2022. Keep in mind, capacity was up 14%. Now to the Q1 guidance, and this is what people are gonna be talking about on Wall Street over the next couple of days. Earnings per share, a loss of between 35 and 85 cents a share in the first quarter. The street was expecting a loss or the guidance going into the earnings today was 21 cents a share for the first quarter. Total revenue per seat mile flat in the first quarter. Cost per available seat mile up mid single digits versus the first quarter of 2023. And we talk about the impact of the Max 9 grounding. The company says that if this grounding extends to the end of the month, it is a 3% cost per available seat mile headwind for the first quarter. So that's part of the reason why the company is now expecting a loss of, what, $0.35 cents to $0.85 cents a share. Keep in mind that Boeing or United has 79 Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes. They have been grounded for two weeks. No indication when that grounding is going to be lifted. We'll be talking with Scott Kirby, CEO of United Airlines, tomorrow morning, not just about the MAX 9 grounding, Melissa, but the broader question, the question that all airlines who have orders with Boeing are facing right now, do they feel confident that the maxes they are scheduled to receive, including the Max 10, which is not yet certified, do they think that those are going to be coming as planned? United has a schedule for 77 they expect to get this year, maxes, and then 277 next year and beyond. Does that get pushed out? And if you're Scott Kirby and United, what does that do for your planning? How do you adjust to that? Lots to discuss with him. We'll be dis uh, talking with him tomorrow morning on Squawk Box. Melissa, back to you. Just to be clear, Phil, the wider than expected Q1 forecast includes the potential impact from further grounding. If the grounding goes to the end of Continues. the month, it's a 3% okay. headwind. It's right. a 3%. And, and nothing, they haven't gone beyond that. 
And any word from United at all so far? And I understand the earnings call is going to happen, et cetera, and there may be more that comes out there. But there was a report saying that Scott Kirby was expressing frustration over what, how the FAA handled the grounding, how Boeing has handled it, frustration with the, boat, the management at Boeing, et cetera. Anything on the record? Is he that? frustrated? Mm-hmm. On the record, we haven't heard from him yet. We'll hear it tomorrow yeah. morning. Do I expect to hear Scott Kirby, a frustrated Scott Kirby? You bet. I mean, look at it from his perspective, Melissa. Not only do you have 79 MAX 9s that have been grounded, and they may be grounded here for another week or two. Who knows how long they're grounded? But he's got 354 MAX planes, including 150 MAX 10s on the order book. He is looking over the next couple of years saying, this is how I want to build our airline. Well, how much confidence do you have that you'll be able to receive those maxes, including the Max 10, which is not yet certified? And the reason I bring this up, Melissa, is many people believe that the Max 10 certification, which is right now most people say fourth quarter event, is it going to happen in the fourth quarter? There's increasingly chatter of, hey, the FAA might feel pressure to push this out a little bit further. We don't know for sure, but that's that's at the heart of the frustration that Scott Kirby is likely expressing right now. All right, Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau. And I'm sure the frustration that Boeing shareholders have as well. How many times can Dave Calhoun Mm. be let off the hook for things like this? Guy. Well, it's at least it'll be the fourth or fifth time. And I think there's going to listen at some point. Right. You're going to have to answer a lot of questions. What with that said, Boeing traded down, filled a gap on the downside very quietly. It's probably rallied seven percent in a couple of days. With that said, United, the first quarter guide will write it off. But look at the full year guide. They narrowed it to nine bucks to eleven bucks. Take the midpoint ten. That's better than the street is expecting. Start doing the multiple game. You put a four and a half, even a five multiple. It's a fifty dollar stock. Delta is a way to play it. United goes higher, I think, but Delta is the one I would buy here. I agree with you in terms of uh, in terms of um, valuation, right? That's pretty compelling. But some of the unit economics were to me were a bit concerning. I see top and bottom line numbers which beat. But when you're talking about you know the, the cost associated with uh, average seat mile revenue per average seat mile, as well as now the higher cost of in- employment staff, I think that's just a, a bit of a tough makeup for me. Coming up, a biotech bust. Shares of Gilead seeing its worst drop since 2014. The disappointing drug results that sent that name sinking. That's next. Plus, Macy's getting a boost after rejecting a takeover bid to go private. Why the company says the deal fell short and why one of our traders scooped up more stock this morning. Don't go anywhere. More Fast Money in two. This is Fast Money with Melissa Lee. Right here on CNBC. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a buzzkill on Gilead. Shares plunging more than 10%. That's its worst day in over nine years after the company said its cancer drug, Tradelvi, failed to meet expectations in a late-stage trial. Gilead saying the drug, which is already approved for certain breast cancer and bladder cancers, did not improve survival rates in patients with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. Tradelvi is one of Gilead's best-selling treatments. Um, the company also said that it still feels confident in the prospects for this drug. This was a test to, to test this alongside another drug. Yeah, so that, it, that's what failed. So it's sell first, ask questions later, they're gonna present again. They, were, they actually were sort of encouraged by some of the data, but obviously the trading community was not. And the problem, of course, is it's had a huge run into this event. I get it. But then you look at the analysts. Piper Jaffrey just came out with a note. After that was they still reiterate their $100 price target. There are a lot of things to like about Gilead here. Traded 20 million shares today. Maybe that's not full capitulation. Maybe it's another day or two of selling. But I think you buy the weakness on the back of this. So this is why so many people play, including myself. You'll, you'll pick the biotech stock that you want to play. But then you buy the IBB, the large cap biotech. Or you buy the XBI, because if you look at the IBB, it wasn't down today. You look at the XBI, it wasn't down today. It was actually up today. So it's very difficult to pick those binary outcomes or these one-offs. But I agree with Guy. If you have the stomach to watch the roller coaster, then you could be long a name like Gilead, which is the number four weighting in the IBB to begin with. But I think you're better off buying an ETF versus buying the single names. Yeah, and that's been your philosophy yes. as well. I don't have the stomach for sure. Yeah, Gilead was a reason it wasn't up more. It still managed to be up nicely, but uh, I'm in your camp. I just can't do it. All right. There's a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Takeover Turndown. Macy's passing on a nearly $6 billion bid to go private. Why the deal needs to be a lot sweeter if they want to see a miracle on 34th Street. The details next. Plus, the land of the rising sun giving rise to your portfolio. Japan stocks hitting a 34-year high. But can the good times last? The Chartmaster is digging into the overseas technicals ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Macy's topping the tape today after the retailer rejected a bid to take it private. Arkhouse Management confirming it teamed up with Brigade Capital in December to offer $5.8 billion for the company. But Macy's saying on Sunday that the deal fails to provide compelling value to its shareholders. The stock up almost 4% today. One of our traders thinks Macy's is making the right move, bought more shares of the company this morning. That trader would be Karen. Yes. So, why? Right. Well, you know, I'm a Viscar by nature, mm. so I found, found this appealing in that the stock opened, pre-market was trading poorly. I thought this was actually Macy's showing a sign of strength. These guys came out with 21. Macy's kind of said, look, you don't have, we don't, we don't really fully get your financing. There was some back and forth, maybe some miscommunication. 21's not enough. We're done. That There was nothing to discuss. So uh, the CEO of Arkhouse did an interview uh, today saying, 
Look, we show, we've told them where our finance is going to come from. They should let us sign an NDA and look at their books. Macy's, I think, to their credit, said, no, we don't have to do anything. They're not saying we are not for sale at any price. Right. Right? They're just saying the value wasn't compelling. <laughs> and I think that the ball is actually in our Cal's brigade's court right now. They've got to either show they're going to file a proxy and look to unseat the board. The entire board is up for election. Hmm. Or... They've got to show stronger financing or they've got to show a higher price or some mixture of those three. And I think at this price, um, the risk reward is pretty compelling. Does it matter what the plan is for their takeover? It doesn't matter. The capital structure does. The capital structure does. Right. The financing does. Right. That does. But as far as you're concerned, what happens to it afterwards? Well, it depends if they I mean, it's sort of the buyer. The buyer wants it to work. Right. For sure. But um, the capital structure definitely matters here, um, and obviously it's a real estate place somewhat, so capital structure is very important. Yeah, Macy's is basically saying, no, we're worth more. Your bid doesn't basically, there's no way we're going to even take a look at this thing. And then they're going to go to shareholders, I would imagine, at some point. That'll probably fall on somewhat deaf ears, and it's risk arm. Karen's right, so you're playing the game. Are they going to increase the bid? Is it going to be a 21 to $23 bid? And at 18 and a quarter, I think the risk reward probably sets up well. So when you do have that, the beauty of this is they throw out that number 21 out there, and that's just valuing them on, on real estate, the retail, the, the retail business you're getting for free at that point. So they're value, they'll say it's valuing everything, they're, they're, but it's really just the, just the real estate that they're valuing. My problem, here's my conspiracy theory. Okay. Why doesn't Macy's want to open up their books? Why should they? For, let's say I came You're to Macy's. Steve, you're saying that, Steve, but that's. I will buy your house for $15,000. <laughs> right? Let me take a look. Okay. Let me take a look. Well, you, gonna, you would I mean, think that the books show it's more, worth more than $15,000. Right. But the, but the, it was stated that they would, uh, it would uh, increase that bid. If they got to look at the books first. If Macy's it, is because saying. Because maybe they want to see something else in the books. And maybe Macy's doesn't want to. I'm just playing both okay, sides I of it here. Okay, I get you. $21 isn't the number that gets them to look at the books. That's it. Maybe right. it's 24. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the I just like the is. idea, though. If it's traded at $18 and someone throws out a $21 bid. And it's the not stock, at 21 Stock should have had a magnet there because you're only valuing the real estate. Everything else should be. Above well, that. I think the real estate story doesn't hold water like it used to. One, rates are much higher. That's part of it. Two, there's been a real estate story at Macy's before. So uh, that's not enough. They need to, sh- and, they, and the concern about financing. Not to mention the commercial aspect, right? We're talking about commercial property here, right? So like that's going to be valued in, on the opco. So I'm with you. It's actually a double whammy. They're not valuing the operating company and they're impairing the real estate, saying that the operating company isn't working. So I'm with Karen. Why would I bother even engaging with you at a, at a, a low ball price, right? It's yeah, just, maybe it's, they got it's, Hoff on the books. It's, 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 not, it's, there. It's, it's not compelling. There's something there. Right, and He's if you look at... conspiracy theorists. <laughs> <laughs> All right, coming up, a house divided. Analysts call sending Home Depot and Lowe's lower. All the builders will not let Wall Street bring them down. But is this trade standing on shaky foundation? We'll discuss that ahead. And the Nikkei index hitting 34-year highs as Japanese stocks keep climbing. Is there more overseas opportunity to be had? We'll see what the chart master thinks about the levels next. Fast Money's back in two. Missed a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money podcast. We're back right after this.
Welcome back to Fast Money. The S&P and Dow both closing at records for the second day in a row. The Dow topping 38,000 for the first time ever. The Nasdaq, meantime, hit its highest level in over two years. All three indices now on a three-day winning streak. Shares of Archer Daniels Midland, meantime, plummeting more than 24%. Its worst day ever. The food processing giant placing its CFO on leave amid an accounting probe. ADM also announcing weak Q4 guidance and getting a downgrade from analysts over at Goldman Sachs. And Japan's benchmark Nikkei index also on a tear. It's hitting a new 34-year high. The index is up more than 9% year-to-date, far outpacing the S&P. And Carter Braxton Worth is digging into the charts to see where the index is going from here. Carter, what do you see? Well, I suppose it's always about your time frame and knowing uh, who one is in the market. Uh, Day-to-day, week-over-week, Nikkei is a bit uh, steep and uncorrected, uh, up 10% in the past month. Um, and you can see it here. It's a textbook setup, well-defined intermediate tops at a common level and a breakout. Uh, but that breakout is quite steep. And now all of a sudden it's very popular, uh, having been unchanged for almost seven, eight months. The breakout is textbook. But I think you you fade it if you have the dexterity and you're on the short and intermediate side. Um, by contradistinction, Hang Seng is down 10 percent and right to a prior low. So you've got uh, 2,000 base points of spread in a, in a one-month period uh, between these equally important um, uh, uh, indices in the Far East. And uh, for fun, let's look at some comparative charts just to set this up. This is a 10-year. The lines are clear. The colors are clear. Blue is Japan. Uh, orange is the Hang Seng. If we were to look at the next time frame, take a look at uh, a little bit longer term, 30 years. They're even money. So which is which is it? Now go 50 years, and of course this is the tail. Um, I mean, uh, Hang Seng is is 5x uh, that of the Nikkei. But what we know is that each is under a certain amount of demographic pressure, of course, um, and in many ways they have the exact same uh, birth rate. These are fundamental things, uh, but at 1.2, uh, 1.3 each uh, per woman, it's a uh, it's a bad uh, business plan, if you will. Uh, just to end with, you know, there was Shaker Furniture, beautiful stuff. They don't even use nails. They use the wooden pegs. But they didn't believe in procreating. Uh, that's a permanently bad business plan. So, Carter, you also put out a note today on TLT. Play for a bounce? Yeah, play for a bounce. So we're, we're at this point, uh, we think uh, you've had a fairly extreme move and uh, rates lower from here. All right, Carter Braxtonworth, thank you. You bet. Guy, you were snickering during. No, a, contradistinction. I mean, his vocabulary. I, I just, I could <laughs> you listen to him. Something new, the more you know. I feel like that should be playing all the time. Carter Worth should do a more you know, unlike the NBC. He really should. I saw him with, you do one, Carl. I saw him with Brian Sullivan. That's all we're here to talk about. TLT, <laughs> listen, went from, I think, 84 to 100 ish. It, it sold off. I think Carter's saying, you know, the sell off over the last week and a half, two weeks is enough. It can basically start to reaccelerate to the upside, which means yields go lower. If yields start to go lower, is that going to be further ammunition for the broader market to go higher? So we'll see. But Carter's call on TLT technically makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and you're in and out of TLT. In and out, yeah, yeah. covered. I um, would like. I, I think I'll get a chance to put it out again. Japan. I was waiting. Yeah, I was, right. I was waiting. Does that to, worry you? To take a term from guys' generation, I'm not digging the digging on my diggy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so listen, I, I, 
I'm not going to sit here and argue from week to week or day to day what the price action is going to be on DXJ. What I'm going to say is that I think that China is priced where it is, relatively speaking, because China is viewed as an impaired asset in the late early innings of trying to get things corrected versus Japan being in the relatively early early innings of an expansion, change in monetary policy and corporate oversight. I would still prefer the outperformer given that context. I, I think I'll pick it up where he left off. This is a bigger, the, the story here is that every, there's a mass exodus from China related, trying to figure out where the most hospitable place to put your money. And those are the ones that are gaining the attraction while China continues to lose. Right. Coming up, the highs and lows in the housing trade. Home improvement names getting hit while the builders shake off the naysayers. Where you should be in the space next, an earnings season kicking into high gear with names from J&J to GE to Netflix all set to report tomorrow. What to expect and how options traders are streaming in next. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Housing need of repair. Two analysts getting negative on the sector today. Oppenheimer downgrading Home Depot and Lowe's, citing a challenging backdrop in the near term. Meantime, home builders rising despite Seaport lowering its outlook for the space. Analysts see increased risk for this recent rally, particularly in this uh, Fed rate cutting cycle. Potentially, they cited 16 cycles, I think, since 1966. And in each time, they say that the risk reward narrows after that. The Home Depot call is interesting. We can talk housing stocks, but they report, I think, they're off cycle, so mid-February. So you get some time to hear from them. With that said, it's a, it's a direct call on the consumer and demand, and they're basically saying, you know what, they might have gotten ahead of themselves here. Valuation is not ridiculous for Home Depot, probably not for Lowe's either. However, if you see a slowdown and margins start to contract, you see how quickly they'll sell the stock off. So I admire the call only in so much as they did it ahead of earnings in a month from now. Yeah, I, I'm long Home Depot, long more lows. I mean, it's hard to get super excited about Home Depot here. But if you do believe that existing home sales will eventually make their way onto the market, I think that will be a positive thing for Home Depot. To Guy's point, lows, the forward P.E. of lows is 16, a little under 17 versus 23 and change. To me, it's similar to the Target Walmart situation. I just think that chasm is too big and lows should trade tighter to Home Depot. I understand the thesis around there being less asymmetric risk and that risk-reward narrowing, but I would argue you could make that exact same argument for the overall market. So, you know, I, I think that there has been some strength here. And what you haven't seen in existing home sales, that has been the that has benefit, benefited the home builder complex. So I think maybe you want to fade one and hold on to the other, but I don't think I would wholesale be short both of them. Yeah, I, I, I agree. The The... The flip side of it is uh, we've talked about this existing home sales, new home sales. So the new home sales, they are able to buy down, especially they're able to buy down mortgage rates now, especially with the light at the end of the tunnel. And to Karen's point, if you if you fight through this and existing home sales start to rebound, this is going to be a tailwind to Home Depot and Lowe's. Home Depot is definitely the favorite. If I if if I would would you rather you didn't ask me, so I'm not giving this plus. <laughs> so I would pick Home Depot, but Let's think about this. Earnings are lagging, right? It's a lagging indicator. So by the time we see through this, yes, you could have a bad earnings print for Home Depot, but we're already in the cycle that Karen's talking about where existing home sales, where uh, rates are falling, existing home sales have a tailwind. So you could be late, even though you're early on this call. Think about that during the commercial break. I'm sure we will. <laughs> <laughs> so would you rather, you. but you didn't even. <laughs> yeah. She didn't bite. She didn't bite. 
Coming up, Netflix leading a huge slate of earnings tomorrow. We'll get a first look at what to expect from the report and a way to play the outcome with options. And here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is chatting exclusively with CrowdStrike CEO George Kurtz. Kurtz, catch the full interview, top of the hour. More Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've only just started this earnings season with a slate of big names reporting tomorrow. Netflix, J&J, Procter & Gamble, and Texas Instruments among the highlights. Netflix getting a boost ahead of tomorrow's report after Evercore ISI reiterated its outperform rating on the streaming giant, saying it sees analyst estimates as reasonable. Meantime, options traders expecting a sizable move in Netflix after its report. Mike Coe joins us now with a way to take advantage of this. Mike. Yeah, so it is implying right now about a move of, uh, call it 8%, higher or lower by the end of the week. And as big a move as that is, that's actually lower than the nearly 14% or so that the company has actually averaged over the last eight reported quarters. And I think we can actually take advantage of the slightly lower options premiums that we are seeing going into the earnings print, potentially by hedging these, the basically the rally that we've seen, buying the March 475, 435 put spread. When I was looking at that earlier today, that was going to cost you about 12 bucks per share or about 2.5% of the current stock price. The company is guided essentially towards 20% margins, and it hasn't really managed to string more than a couple quarters together with those kinds of margins over the last couple of years. It's reasonably priced if it achieves them, but in case they do not, this is a cheap way to hedge your position. What do you think of this trade, Mono, and what do you think of Netflix in general? Listen, I think it's been a strong uptrend, and clearly it's the best in class there. I'm 100% in line with Professor Coe here in terms of taking advantage of cheap insurance. I mean, he who has no insurance eventually loses their home. And I think that case, that's the case here as well. It's like a bumper sticker. Or like or a, something cookie. that you sew into a pillow. Or a fortune cookie. <laughs> All of the above. Yeah. Netflix? We've liked it for a long time. I'm concerned in earnings that, you know, this move we've seen over the last six months, go back two years, quite frankly, it was a $180 stock might set up not particularly well post-earnings. So if you're long the stock, I would suggest taking some profits. I understand why people want to let it ride, though. You own it still. I do own it. Yeah. So this kind of thing, all right, it's, it's not cheap, right? Yeah. We all know what it has going for it. It's one. It's over. One streaming. I think this is something um, you would sell upside calls. Do you look at this, though, when we're starting to readapt to the new Netflix now with that ad tier? Where, which has gone from 5 million to 15 million to, to 20 to 23 now. Is that the next headwind? Because that's what it feels like to me. That's the headwind? next leg. I'm sorry. Tailwind. Tail. Oh, tailwind. That's the next leg of the story where I have I had thought that the others would catch up. They've obliterated all the others. So every time I thought this would sell off, it, it just it's been bulletproof. So I get Guy's point. I think it's a little extended. But that ad tier seems as though that's an incredible tailwind that maybe it is flattening out. But that seems like an awful lot of dollars that they're going to start taking in. But the question is, what do you think's priced in for that right. ad tier improvement continuing? Yeah. I don't know exactly. It's hard to differentiate what's what, but it's not cheap. Especially if we've gotten the data points as, as, as the numbers really have good. come and in. Right, really exactly. And that's what it's been rallying on. Mike, when you take a look at some of the others uh, reporting tomorrow, do you see any notable activity? Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, a lot of the uh, stocks that we have reporting are seeing some pretty big volumes. You know, it, it's interesting to me that like Netflix, and actually, if you just take a look at the VIX index, I think that's sort of going to give you a sense of what we're seeing in the options market, which is that more than anything, I think people are some who were expecting rotation out of some of the highest flying stocks were actually seeing real strength in them. And so we saw a lot of upside call buying. And 
the risk premium that we're seeing in options is actually surprisingly low. And that's one of the reasons why uh, you know, I might favor using something like a put spread rather than, say, selling upside calls, uh, as Karen's talking about. That's a strategy that can make a lot of sense in a lot of contexts. But when options premiums are low like this, we're sitting at all-time highs, uh, you know, maybe getting a little bit of insurance is, is, a, is a good way to play it. All right. Mike, thanks. Always good to see you. Mike, oh, by the way, that Netflix, we'll be training it tomorrow, the conference call or the call is at 4.45 tomorrow, so actually before our show, which is a change. It's usually at 6. We, that's so going to be fun. That will be fun. We can actually mm-hmm. trade something. Um, all right. <laughs> Up next, final trade. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Steve. Alphabet. They couldn't own AI last year. They're going to leave their mark in it this year. Chairwoman. Yes, I've been surprised the banks haven't rallied more with this market, and I think they're uh, undervalued. So we'll go with the best of the best, J.P. Morgan. Following. I'm also in the banks. Fifth third. Uh, listen, I think if you're looking at more of a stable, uh, ba- a stable deposit base and talking about possible share buybacks, you're probably in a good spot. You had a great call on that Chiefs game. You thought the Chiefs were going to Buffalo and win. Once again, you're right. And you mentioned that you sort of have your apprehensions in Baltimore this weekend. But we'll get more into it at the end of the week. Palo Alto Networks, Melms. Thank you for watching Fast Money. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, do not go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.